Dear listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. I'm happy to say that every episode we produce, we see more listens, more shares, and more downloads. And so that means that our audience is growing. But we still could use some support. So if you like what you hear and you want to give us some support, then check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash reimaginingsovietgeorgia. And if you can't, maybe you know somebody who can just kick a few bucks a month. A little goes a long way in helping us expand the scope of our project and do more. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Claire Kaiser, thank you so much for coming on to Reimagining Soviet Georgia. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Thanks, Brian, for, for the invitation and great to be, be on here. I've been a, an avid listener for a while now, so great to, to finally be in the hot seat. Um, I am an adjunct professor uh, at Georgetown University in the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and Eastern European Studies, um, historian by training, uh, though I work um, kind of by day in the private sector, um, working on policy and, and uh, kind of uh, and government related issues, but um, continue to pursue uh, to pursue history. Uh, and, you know, over the past decade at this point, uh, have been working on the book that we're going to talk about today. Great. And uh, your book Georgian and Soviet Entitled Nationhood and the Specter of Stalin in the Caucus. I got a chance to read it and thought it was great. I also read your dissertation uh, a couple of years ago, and so it was cool to see the <laughs> development and progression of it. Uh, this is really great. And so if you could just give our listeners a little summary of your book, you know, what is it about? Uh, what are you saying with it? And what is it? Uh, thanks, Brian. So um, the book... Actually, I think that the title really captures it, Georgian and Soviet. And the and, I think, is really important. Um, it isn't Georgian or Soviet. It was actually possible to sort of inhabit those two pretty important identity categories simultaneously. And they were, I think, mutually reinforcing. Uh, the Soviet Union set up uh, an ethno-territorial framework that sought to uh, invest in a, a specific number of, of nationalities and develop them such that they would be transcendable, you know, on the, the grand march to communism in the, the distant future. Of course, in reality, what happened ended up being quite different. But uh, in the 70 years of the, the Soviet Georgian experience, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, 
those, those institutions and that framework uh, kind of left um, uh, or didn't leave their mark, so to speak. I think, um, you know, the, the book in general is very much looking at what that and uh, included in that that 70 year period, but more broadly, not simply making the leap from, I don't know, the 30s and high Stalinism and what people tend to examine when they're looking at the Soviet um, approach toward nationality and then jumping to 1985 when magically everything changes uh, with, with Gorbachev and the, the collapse. Um, you know, I actually think that in the, the post-war period and the post-Stalin period looking, um, you know, after 1956 in particular is extremely important in understanding, you know, not only what the policy toward nationality was in the Soviet Union, but what that meant for second and third generation Soviet citizens. What did they do with the, um, the policies, the frameworks, the, the concepts uh, that were um, elaborated in the, the 20s, 30s and early 40s? You know, and, and what did that mean in practice? Um, what they did, what did they decide to double down on? What did they, they decide to kind of discard? Um, and how did they make it work for local context? So I think this is a story, you know, I focus on Georgia as a case study, but I, I honestly think that um, we need to see more of this for you know, all of the, the non-Russian parts of the Soviet Union um, to, to really understand what this, this looked like, you know, over the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, because we really just can't assume you know, first and foremost, that the Soviet Union was Stalinism and, and make that sort of jump from the 30s to the 80s. Um, that doesn't really serve anybody, nor is it um, terribly historically accurate. Um, but I think, you know, seeing the the slower change over time in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s in particular, um, when the Soviet Union isn't facing, you know, existential crises, isn't trying to uh, reform itself violently through collectivization and terror, uh, and actually see what the the kind of social fab fabric and and long term change at the you know individual communal level et cetera looks like. So that's really what my book is is set out to do. Um, and at the center of it all, of course, um, it goes without saying, is Stalin. Um, and that was really my my entry point into this topic when I was early in grad school. Um, you know, not necessarily asking what. Um, I think the the question that often comes up with regard to Stalin, Georgia, is oh, you know. Was Georgia privileged under Stalin? Did they have some sort of, um, I don't know, special access to favors? Were they given a pass in the terror? Which, of course, you know, seems like a ridiculous question. Um, but the conversation doesn't really ask how did things change after, um, not only after Stalin died, but after the the policy change that Khrushchev uh, initiated in 1956 and de-Stalinization. And so that was what really intrigued me was how. Uh, what did the kind of Moscow Tbilisi look, relationship look like under Stalin, you know, at the peak when it wasn't just about Stalin, but, you know, plenty of other people who he kind of rose uh, through the ranks with him as he ascended to power. But what happens when when they leave the scene? Um, you know, how does that affect the the local lay of the land in Georgia and not just for Georgians? Um, you know, I think uh, that perspective is actually crucial and, and one of the core kind of trends that, that I'm looking at in the book. You know, there's one word that you have in the title of your book that I was hoping you could kind of explain to our listeners, which is, or I should say phrase, the entitled nationhood. So what is entitled nationhood and what does this mean for your book and for our understanding of, you know, Soviet Georgia? So this is my attempt. Uh, this is uh, a term that I came up with because I felt that uh, some of the other um descriptors for the Soviet nationality schema were, were kind of lacking. You know, I think affirmative action empire, of course, was um, has done a lot of work um, and, and people continue to refer to that that important idea that, that Terry Martin put forward 
uh, in his his seminal work now almost I think about 20 years ago um uh empire of nations of course you know these 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 questions of how how empire nation building and and the Soviet ethnoterritorial landscape you know kind of all all referred to each other you know something that I felt was a little bit missing uh from from some of the these earlier concepts was the idea of of agency on behalf of the, the individual people um you know I think it's one thing for rights and and uh policies to exist on paper uh but actually you know how that plays out in practice is quite different and so you know I I came up with the idea of of describing this as an entitled nationhood because um for me it was it described the the transition from I think you know to some extent, extent, subjecthood to citizenship a little bit uh, that we really see in a transition from the Stalin era to the post-Stalin era. Um, but it, it, for me, describes a process not only of having rights uh, on paper, but actually going out and trying to claim those rights uh, through um, a variety of participatory mechanisms that we increasingly see kind of from the 50s onward. Um, so I describe Georgians as the entitled nationality within Georgia, Every non-Russian uh, republic had an entitled nationality, be it Armenians and Armenia, Ukrainians and Ukraine, et cetera. So, so that um, terminology really does uh, refer to, you know, what I think people would typically call titular nationality. But I always found that to be kind of an insular term that only, you know, people really in the weeds on Soviet history would understand. If you described it to somebody else, they would say, you know, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> so, so I'm trying to to sort of expand the and currency of the vocabulary a little bit and also make it less passive because I don't think that um, these policies created passive societies. I think, you know, quite the contrary in the case of, of nation building and nationality. So, um, so that's what I'm trying to do with this entitled framework. I think it also shows some of the, the tensions uh, inherited in, um, in how the Soviet Union did, did construct its, its ethno-territorial um, landscape. You know, number one, it meant that there were hierarchies. So the entitled nationality in each um, SSR had more rights than the non-entitled nationalities in that republic. So some of those minorities were um, uh, minorities that didn't have a, a kin republic, for example. So um, if we're looking at Georgia, you, know, you have our significant Armenian and Azerbaijani populations who, of course, could then appeal to their respective capitals, you know, in the event that they felt uh, that their um, you know, rights weren't being protected in, in Soviet Georgia. Um, of course, uh, in the case of Azerbaijan, you had uh, Georgians doing pretty much the same thing vis-a-vis -vis Tbilisi. Um, and I look at that in detail in the book. Um, but you also have minorities who, um, you know, might be what the Soviet Union regarded as a, um, like a, a, a foreign non-indigenous population, be they Greeks um, or, or uh, Germans uh, or, or others. Um, and so, uh, there are a variety of different kind of categories of minorityhood uh, in in the Soviet um, ethno-territorial schema, and I think uh, this notion of not only a hierarchy of rights with entitled nationalities being at the top, and it not really you know in practice being as an as egalitarian of a society as it aspired to be, uh, because if you were an entitled nationality living in your republic, so to speak, you did have more rights than than the non-entitled nationalities, and so. Um, but you had to actually go out and claim them uh, in order for the, the whole system to, to sort of work. And that's what I really saw, you know, spending time in the archives, reading a lot of citizen petitions and letters and that sort of thing. I saw them doing it, you know, at the individual level. It is an elite driven uh, in the post-Stalin era. It's, you know, popular, uh, pop a popular um, 
kind of grassroots effort almost. Actually, can you talk more about those letters? I was like, when I read uh, about that, I was like really intrigued um, because I am also right now, um, I found some of my grandfather's letters. And so I'm uh, translating them and there's not that many, but like I'm translating them into English and I'll send them to you if you're interested. They're really great, actually. He's sort of trying to understand Georgia. He's a huge Stalinist and and he thinks that's why the Georgia nationhood actually exists because of Stalin. And and he hates Khrushchev. Um, he's writing poetry. He was like exiled in Siberia during Khrushchev. Um, and he's writing poetry about how beautiful Georgia and like for him, Georgia coming to nationhood is very much a Soviet project. Um, and also my uncle was part of the de-Stalinization process, like fighting against it. He was like with the first president of Georgia. He was in this uh, revolutionary group. <laughs> so, um, but of course the first national movement is actually in defense of Stalin, which right. now it's to condemn Stalin. Like they were protecting Stalin statues <laughs> and now they're destroying the Stalin statues. So it's funny, the same people pretty much, um, or at least the similar people. Um, and so I'm so, I was, I kind of want you to tell me more about the things you found in these letters. I think that's really interesting. Sure. Um, no, happy to do that. And and I'd love to see, um, you know, some of your, your family, family archive. That sounds fascinating and uh, definitely touching on exactly the themes that, that I uncovered from, from so many other Soviet Georgian archives. So, um, you know, I think um, in general, right, we're trying to get past strictly elite and kind of political narratives for, for history. That's not a new trend, um, but it's something when you're working in Soviet archives, uh, one of the, the great things about Soviet archivists is they really did Try to keep everything you know every letter from a citizen to some local official saying that their pension was late that they need a better apartment uh you know things that seem you know they're they're important of course for daily life but like they seem somewhat i don't know quotidian um and and not not the high drama of soviet history you also of course see things that very much are in that category right um trying to appeal on behalf of a family member who has been exiled or trying to apply for rehabilitation, that sort of thing. Um, questioning why uh, a certain group uh, maybe was was forcibly resettled to um, to Central Asia and, and not others trying to reclaim property. So, so you have that whole spectrum of Soviet experience kind of captured in the, you know, thousands of caches of letters that are just sitting in Soviet archives. So not unique to Georgia, but for me, that was a great lens um, to try to look at change over time uh, at, at the individual le level. You know, of course, in some cases, you're, um, you're fortunate and that you're able to uh, kind of find one person who has written multiple times on multiple issues and actually is able to get into a dialogue with the authorities. I would say, um, you know, there, there was one kind of, uh, figure in particular who I was able to do that with, and he was very interestingly uh, a, a, an, an ethnic Georgian, you know, who was born in the northern Azerbaijan a province know that Georgians refer to as Sayingalo. Uh, so uh, Georgian speakers who are in Azerbaijan, mix of, of Christian and Muslim, Muslim populations. But in the, the 40s, 50s, 60s in particular, um, there's there's a really interesting kind of uh, both elite as well as uh, I think civic um, kind of local level engagement there uh, from Georgia uh, on, on behalf of these, these populations, not to mention efforts in various points to claim that this land should rightfully be Georgia and should be returned, et cetera. So um, there was one figure in particular um, who just was kind of a 
you know, self-proclaimed advocate who decides to weigh in with Tbilisi, decides to visit Stalin, uh, you know, and uh, got Charkviani's attention, really focused on this, apparently. Um, his name, uh, his last name was Gamkarashvili. And he was really just extremely, you know, effective on the one hand at, at bringing attention to this issue. But seeing, since he was writing about this over the course of, I don't know, 20 years or so, seeing the change over time and how he described, um, you know, using a combination of, you know, kind of very like Stalinist techniques, uh, as well as Marxist-Leninist um, theory, as well as uh, how he described uh, developments on the ground in his relation to them. Just being able to chart that change over time and how he was writing about this this issue was was very illustrative. Um, you know, and when he chose to write in Georgian versus Russian too, um, you know, that, that was, uh, I think, you know, one of the lucky cases of actually being able to trace change over time in the, the case of one individual um, who was focused on an issue that uh, really resonated with the themes I was studying. In most cases, though, they're one-offs, right? Um, somebody writes a letter. It's hard to say if, if anybody ever responded to it or, or what actually happened. Um, so I think, you know, over the course of my archival research in Tbilisi, which, you know, I, I spent 2011 to 2013 there, um, the vast majority of that two-year period, and then went back in 2015 uh, to, to get a bit more. Um, but, uh you know, the, those letters really um, did allow me to get beyond kind of the, the official sort of elite driven narratives, I think, to see how people were understanding. Uh, I mean, they wrote about all kinds of topics, but I was, of course, interested in particular about how they were understanding the national dimension of um, of Soviet Georgia, of membership in the Soviet Union and, and that sort of thing, um, and how they were relating to to various kind of vectors of power through uh, through writing. And sometimes these were individual individual letters. Um, sometimes they were petitions signed by hundreds. Uh, you know, we certainly see this in the case of, of Abkhazia, um, starting from the, the 40s, uh, when you have these these mass petition campaigns aimed at at Moscow and then getting forwarded to Tbilisi with lots of signatories. Um, uh, and so just that uh, as as a way to chart longer term developments and, and changes in how, um, you know, individual citizens uh, and uh, authors are are understanding the world around them and uh, what compels them to write. You know, I found that to be a helpful, helpful lens. Um, and of course, you know, letters, letters are, are not perfect, but, but they're, um, you know, sometimes what they don't include can be more telling than what they do. You know, some are signed, some are not, some include, you know, detailed biographies and contact information. Uh, others, of course, on more sensitive topics don't. So, you know, put all of those pieces together if you read enough of them. And I probably, I mean, I read, I don't know. I mean, several hundred, uh, if not more, um, in in those those few years, and and was able to to really, you know, glean glean quite a bit to to um, chart this this change over time that I've been talking about in my book. Yeah, one of the things I think your book does really well is that it you know it really tries to show this picture of Soviet Georgia as like not something that should be understood in pure black and white terms, and one of the I guess, ways that you do that is by, and you kind of just mentioned this, uh, giving agency in the story to actors and people that sort of maybe oftentimes don't have it, whether it's through the local, you know, small individuals who are writing letters, but, but in a bigger sense, also like giving the agency to build the Soviet Union to Georgians, you know, and one of the things that this does then is breaks down maybe the more uh, traditional or popular understanding of like a periphery um, and an imperial center 
of the Soviet Union. And so how did the Soviet Georgian experience break down a traditional center periphery dynamic? What was it about Soviet Georgia that meant it was not just a periphery of the Soviet Union, but its own sort of agent of Soviet development, national consolidation and change? Uh, great question. And uh, I think there's there are a few components to the answer. I mean, first of all, yes, I think Georgia absolutely turns the notion, uh, the conventional imperial notion of center and periphery completely on its head. Um, definitely in the Stalin era, but not only in the Stalin era. You know, I think um, first and foremost, the fact that you have, um, you know, a, a cohort of not only ethnic Georgians, but I think um, native Caucasians. And so, you know, I would include, of course, Mikoyan in this. I would include even Sergei Kirov. Um, you know, a, a group of, of Bolsheviks who cut their teeth in the Caucasus, you know, many of them were indigenous Caucasians, but um, who end up uh, kind of after the 20s rising uh, to power in, in Moscow and are running everything. You know, Stalin, of course, happened to also be commissar of nationalities and so uh, had a bit more, I think, responsibility for uh, the, the ethnic territorial map of the Soviet Union than maybe some of his colleagues. Um, but, but I think you know, you have this this group of uh, people from the Caucasus or who had significant experiences in the Caucasus really, um, you know, pulling the levers of power um, pretty early on uh, in, in the Soviet period in, in some of its most formative years. So that's that's number one. Uh, number two, I think they this group had a, a hard time distancing themselves too much with events at home. Um, in terms of local politics, in terms of drawing the map, in terms of, you know, the, the famous debate, you know, even early in the 20s about Lenin's Last Testament and the, the ties of that to the Georgian affair, et cetera. You know, these didn't just have implications for Georgia or for the Caucasus. I mean, these had implications for the rest of Soviet history and, and how the, the Soviet kind of federal system was constructed, uh, not to mention the power dynamics between, you know, Stalin, Trotsky, et cetera. Like, um, you know, the, these were really, really huge debates that at the end of the day went down to extremely like local issues in, in Georgia and Georgian politics, um, which I think uh, gets lost on on many. And so I think those those two elements demonstrate, you know, yes, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult to divide center and periphery in the Stalin era, because uh, you have this group of Caucasians in Moscow um, commanding power and running the show, but also because they aren't staying too far removed from, from events on the ground in the Caucasus. Uh, and they do this through a variety of, of ways. You know, sometimes it's personal intervention uh, to the level of micromanagement, I think of, of kind of pet pet issues or pet projects. Um, they, they construct as well um, extremely deep uh, patronage networks uh, that, that plenty of other people have studied um, uh, more in, more in, uh, in depth than I have. Um, but we see, you know, someone, like like Lavrin Tiberia, who really is kind of the master of um, exploiting that that um, that system in particular. Uh, but it means that in the case of Georgia um, specifically, um, and the Caucasus more broadly, I think though though I think Georgia is the most like flagrant exhibitor of this in the Stalin era. You know, calling Georgia periphery, um, you know, really really is questionable. Um, and you know, I think. Georgians at the time didn't see it as such. Uh, and I think others in the Soviet Union who were not Georgian also didn't really see it as such. Um, you know, not, not least because the Soviet elite was spending a good chunk of their time, you know, 
on the Black Sea uh, vacationing in, in Abkhazia uh, for, for uh, a good part of the year, making important decisions. <laughs> so um, so there's a lot of elements there to unpack, but but I think that that absolutely was the case in the Stalin era. Um, what what gets, uh, I think, challenging uh, in, in the, the post-Stalin era is uh, the extent to which then, you know, with, with de-Stalinization, with uh, the protest and crackdown in 1956, um, and this is something that uh, that Tim Blauvelt, I think, kind of coined, but I think others have elaborated on it subsequently, the sense of really uh, a perception of loss of status of Georgians um, ushered in a different type of relationship with Moscow and Tbilisi. So it isn't just that it became like um, the, the imperial lines became less blurry or something. What I think it did was was um, the, the kind of... Uh, unwritten contract that the Georgian leadership made with with Khrushchev's government after the the sort of excesses of, of March 1956 were basically that Georgia would be left to its own devices as long as something to that scale didn't happen again. And so you have then for the next pretty much 30 years, Georgia more or less being being left on its own uh, to do um, to do things within reason as it wished. I mean, I think, you know, you can look at the security services and that's a bit of an exception, an important one, but, but an exception nonetheless. Uh, but in, in terms of, of daily life, in terms of uh, national expression in particular, uh, this is an area where I think Georgia, through this imperial umbrella in the post-Stalin period, was really able to um, kind of carve its own path. And so, uh, again, it's not a typical imperial relationship of center and periphery, uh, but um, made Georgia on the one hand... Uh, like more Soviet, but in its own way. Um, and so, you know, Georgian Sovietness ends up kind of not looking so much uh, like like other variants of Sovietness in in national uh, national republics. But but that in and of itself, I think, is something worth uh, worth exploring a bit more um, with other people studying other other parts of the Soviet Union. No, it's interesting. I've recently heard, and I have heard this many times before, that. One of the reasons that Georgia is not able to sort of have a functioning nation state in post-Soviet world, and this explanation I don't agree with, but some will say like because the Soviet Union was so centralized, the local cadres never learned how to govern their own country. They were so heavily reliant on Moscow to guide them that they could not and they could not govern those skill sets. And I guess that decision-making was absent. Um, I guess, what would you say to that? And then um, on top of that, just to ask this question again, is like, you know, can you unpack this? It's really important, especially now. And so many things are called like decolonize this, decolonize that, you know, like this sort of, you, you say something like the anti-imperialism, anti-empire, empire. empire. <laughs> Um, that's facing some problems because it's reconstituting a lot of what formerly was the Russian Empire. And it shows um, that's an empire at specific points, an empire, but maybe like more centralized. Maybe and also talk about what is the distinction? You know, like can all, should we, you know, as a methodological point, like should we, discuss like how what is an empire you know like what when we talk about decolonization what do we mean exactly because i think so union was a decolonizing project um and constituted according to ideology right like attempt to reframe a different social system um 
and of course within it, because I mean, who could manage such a large context with so many different people in any other way? Like I have like, I, 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 this, I get tired thinking of how many things the Bolsheviks had to do <laughs> just the first few years. I'm like, my God, how did they even succeed? Like, I don't even know. Um, but yeah, maybe they're probably asking themselves the same thing. But. Yeah, right. Like I'm just like, and it's so fast, like to the point that you can fight World War II, like it's insane. Like it really is something I can't imagine that level of of changes so fast. But yeah, maybe those two questions. So um those are it's a lot to unpack. Uh I'll start with the first one, which I actually think is a bit easier. So um I I absolutely disagree with the notion that the Soviet Union left, I guess, I don't know, uh, post-Soviet states without the political, I don't know, uh, institutional knowledge to be able to govern. Um, I mean, I think if anything, for Georgia in particular, uh, on the on the political and policy front, uh, they had excellent training <laughs> uh, from the get-go. Georgia was, you know, one of the very few places that never had uh, kind of non-Russian leadership at the helm. It was run by Georgians the entire time. Of course, you have a symbolic second secretary for a period, um, but you know I think in practice it was it was Georgian gov Georgians governing Georgians, and I think that's something that non-Georgians in the republic were acutely aware of, um, particularly in contrast to other republics, um, and they felt especially vulnerable at various points as a result of that. Um, and so I think uh, in terms of politics, uh, the Soviet Union invested enormously in creating uh, a political, you know, cadre in, in, in Georgia comprised of, of ethnic Georgians. And, you know, if you look at party membership and uh, that sort of thing uh, over the 70 years, you know, Georgia always had a higher number of uh, you know, Georgian um, percentage party memberships than uh, percentage of Georgians in the Republic. So they were always, you know, overrepresented. And that tends to be the case for other metrics too, whether it's higher education, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the various things that you can kind of capture from a Soviet census. But, um, you know, locally Georgians were absolutely overperforming <laughs> statistically in terms of, of representation and that sort of thing. Uh, I think the 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 more important um, and maybe more, uh, um, the piece of the puzzle that's lacking in terms of um, kind of, post-Soviet inheritance is the economic one. They could run a state, but they weren't used to running um, an economy. Uh, and so Georgia had the luxury of, of being uh, of, of kind of being one of the capitals of luxury goods in the Soviet Union. They had a, a clear market for, for these, these products, whether it's, um, you know, wine or tea or tobacco or citrus or, you know, or other things too um, that were less, I think, um, less desired, but still important. You know, you have the built-in Soviet Union uh, as as a as a market um, for, for your goods, as well as uh, the Warsaw Pact, you know, countries. And so I think there was a real mm, illusion in the early '90s, or you know, maybe even the late '80s. Though I think you know, 1989 is a pretty clear breaking point when I think you know, independence as a as a concept became uh, you know a more proximate reality. Um, that because Georgia was, you know, economically so um, successful in the Soviet context that they would be able to then conquer, you know, <laughs> global trade with luxury goods uh, and that sort of thing. And clearly, when you take the the Soviet economic framework away from Georgia, um, you know, you kind of lose everything. And so I think that was a harsh wake up call and something that uh, Georgian leadership was not prepared to, to deal with, um, you know, 
amid the other kind of uh, chaotic elements that that uh, independence and Soviet collapse brought with it, you know, be it war, separatist conflict, uh, et cetera. Um, but, but the economic piece was what was lacking. The political education was absolutely there. Uh, decolonization. Um, so this, yeah, is a very, um, very timely question that I think because of the, the war in Ukraine seems to have gotten a bit more popular um, currency in the discourse. Um, it's something, of course, that that historians have been trying to grapple with for a long time, um, not only whether and the extent to which the Soviet Union was an empire, but if so, what kind of an empire? You know, for me, I found um, uh, the the work of um, Jane Burbank and Fred Cooper, they have a, a large kind of um, comparative history of empire that, you know, goes back to I think, ancient Rome, uh, you know, all the way up through the 20th century. I found that to be methodologically a pretty useful treatment of empire as a concept. Um, as well as um, Ron Suni and Val Kibbelson's book on Russia's empires, you know, I think those kind of twinned are are a useful um, starting point, um, at least conceptually, to 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 put the Soviet Union uh, in in this this broader comparative context. But you know, fundamentally, uh, for me, and the definition that that I'm kind of using in my book is is really just looking at empire as uh, a way for managing differences through hierarchy. So you know, over time. In, in other empires that they could be religious, they could be, um, they could be ethnic, they could be linguistic, et cetera. Um, they could be economic, of course. Um, and in the Soviet Union, uh, the, the way of managing difference, you know, started out being based on class, but, um, you know, I think by the, the late thirties or so nationality really transcends class as the, the sort of key marker of, of difference, as well as access to, um, you know, particular rights in, in the, the Soviet period. And so, you know, for me, uh, that, that becomes kind of the, the key element in understanding the Soviet Union and uh, why and how it was an empire. I don't think uh, the, the sort of colonial framework really works for Georgia. Um, I think, you know, maybe for Central Asia, maybe, maybe for Ukraine at various points, you know, I think jury's still out on that. Uh, and that's very much at the center of discussion right now. Um, but I, for me, the, the colonial framework of um, you know, uh, a primarily a kind of economic extractive, et cetera, relationship with, with the center for Georgia doesn't really work. Um, if, if, um, you know, at the end of the day, really, because you have this, this blurry line between center and periphery in the, in the Stalin era and the Stalin era was 25 years, the 25 pretty important years. And so, um, you know, for me, uh, the, the, that that colonial description of the relationship just doesn't really make sense for Georgia. But I think, you know, over time and over space, empire can mean different things. And it does change over time. It's not a static, static definition. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, maintain, maintenance of, of difference uh, through hierarchies, you know, that I think is is a kind of basic definition of empire that, that worked for me. And it was a way as well to kind of uh, contribute this this concept of entitled nationhood um, because that was how the Soviets at the end of the day ended up constructing and maintaining these uh, hierarchies at the republic level through through nationality and so um, what it ended up producing of course by 1991 uh, was quite different from what they they intended at the outset um, but that's how you ended up getting this um, you know if if Lenin saw the result of course he would be horrified um, at, at what his anti-imperial you know structure ended up producing but but that is what in practice I think the anti-imperial empire 
ended up kind of building over time. You know, there's a theme uh, in your book. When we're talking about nationhood and national development, you have on the one hand ideas about the Georgian nation in Soviet Georgia. And then you also have like materially um, rooted policies. So like one of the aspects of this that to me was very interesting was like the role of historians that you constantly bring back into your book. So Janashia, Berdzinishvili, um, Ingerokva, of course, and then the linguist um, Mar, of course. And and I, mean, I should say intelligentsia or state-aligned intelligentsia. And it's really interesting how like the ideas of these historians are not just you know, some guys sitting in a room and they write something and then it gets lost in, you know, nobody pays attention, but actually has real implications for how the national nation building project will, you know, go forward. And in particular, this relationship between the ideas of Janashi and Birzinishvili and uh, the territorial claims that are being made in uh, Soviet Georgia. So I guess, um, and, and of course, the implications of the Ingerokva uh, uh, thesis um, about the, um, you know, uh, whether or not the Abkhaz are actually Georgians, or this uh, this idea that Mar had about, you know, the history of the uh, Georgian language and whether or not um, uh, Abkhaz language, you know, was actually Georgian language, if I remember correctly, was his idea, um, or the, the, I'm sorry, the roots of the Georgian language. So um, I guess the, I guess my, the first question I have, there's two parts, like, first question is, I have is, you know, what role did historians play in, in uh, the development of Soviet Georgia, and how did they play it? Um, well, this was something that maybe maybe historians are biased because, you know, they want to read and write about historians because they see themselves in them or something. So um, uh, but but I think, um, you know, in, in Soviet history, uh, generally, you know, historians did have an important role to play because, you know, the state was directing uh, political figures to, in some cases, write, in other cases, rewrite national histories um, in order to uh, pursue these these projects of nation building. And it's something that, um, you know, this this group of Georgian historians in particular was very well positioned to do. And so these were not um, purely academic endeavors, uh, far from it. Um, but these were also people who, by virtue of their, you know, their, their age, their generation, et cetera, necessarily had to kind of cross the... Um, revolutionary divide you know they didn't they weren't born in the, the 20s they they had um you know they, they did graduate school they they conducted some some early teaching and that sort of thing you know in at Tbilisi State University in the independent period but also were engaged with the Russian Academy of Sciences uh during the Russian Empire and that sort of thing so so they had um you know careers that transcended that that important divide of um 1917 as well as 1921 um and I think, uh, you know, um, in the case of, of Janashia, Birzinashvili, um, Ingorokva was um, more of, I think, a literary historian. And as a result, got dinged by a lot of actual historians uh, in, the, in the debate surrounding his book uh, when it came out in, in, in the 50s. Um, and, and Mar, of course, a linguist. And, you know, something I think that is actually fascinating about, about Mar and the fate of Marism is that in order for Mar to be... Um, publicly refuted, you know, once Stalin decided that that was going to be, um, you know, out of fashion, 
you know, the way that he did that was write a piece with another Georgian linguist, Arnold Chikobava, and publish it in Pravda, you know, in 1950. So, you know, he's <laughs> using, again, these like very local sort of academic debates, uh, inserting himself in them and, um, you know, conveying that to a broader Soviet audience, um, which, which, you know, I think that the significance of that probably escapes many, but um, for anyone engaged on the, the Georgian side of things, uh, it kind of goes to show where, where Stalin was um, in the, you know, level of engagement to the uh, extreme of like micromanagement and some of these issues. Um, but now I think historians, uh, precisely because of uh, the the goals of nation building that the the Soviet Union, you know, had set in place in the twenties and thirties, you know, they they had big shoes to fill, but they were not. Um, you know, they it, at times were were sort of dangerous shoes to fill as well. Um, you know, you could see uh, how closely the highest levels of Soviet power were engaged in these projects. Um, you know, I have in my book this this fascinating vignette uh, from, from Birdzinishvili and Charkviani, where they, they published this um, new Soviet Georgian textbook, um, kind of marketed, I think, more to kind of a high schoolish audience or so, that covers the ancient times up to the 19th century. So it doesn't get into the question of, um, of revolution, of, of the 19th century incorporation of the Russian Empire, et cetera, but everything else, um, golden age, uh, previous eras of statehood, et cetera a history that, that I think all Georgians would be familiar with. Um, it came out in 1943 when Stalin admittedly was probably occupied with other things, um, be it it's Stalingrad or otherwise. Uh, so late 1945 rolls around, he calls Berdzinishvili, Charkvian, and Janashia to his, his dacha um, in Abkhazia for you know a weekend of revisions and, and line editing uh, to, to get Stalin's take on you know, the extent to which Agmash Nibeli should be, you know, emphasized more and, and how to actually describe Tamar Mepe and, you know, how to how to deal with with, um, you know, the kind of feudal area of era of Georgia and, and what the sort of warring principalities meant in the broader, you know, scheme of history and that sort of thing. So, you know, again, December 1945, um, this kind of early Cold War moment uh, seems like a very interesting time for Stalin to be inserting himself into this, um, you know, like local historians project. Um, to be fair, at the same time, uh, Birds in Ishvili and Janashia are, are penning this, um, this, uh, this article that, that you just described, Brian, uh, that would be published in, in Pravda, but also uh, in, in um, Komunisti, the, the, the local Georgian affiliate, which made very explicit claims to territories in Northeastern Turkey um, that Georgia was trying to make for itself on the world stage. Um, and if you read that article, which if you haven't, like, I recommend it. It's in, in Russian and in Georgian, and I'm sure easy to find English trans translations. You know, there's very little like Soviet in it. It it sounds um, like some pretty committed nationalists who are uh, wanting to to return Georgian lands from you know the the Muslim oppressors. Uh, like it's it's a totally different vocabulary than what you would expect um, given the the time and and clear you know blessing of of um, who was permitting it to be published. And I think. You know, that episode in particular tends to get kind of consigned as like, oh, they were just being used as pawns by Stalin and Beria. They didn't really believe this. It's like, mm, I don't know about that. Um, uh, it goes along with all of their other research and writing, you know, before and after that. Um, the claims they're making are really not in the name of like, you know, Soviet victory and, and Marxism-Leninism. It's appealing to a much, I think, different sort of sense of, of Georgian national identity and and uh, kind of great Georgianness, um, and so I encourage you to take a look at the the article itself if you haven't. Um, 
And they're also doing this through uh, the Georgian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is like an institutional sort of anomaly uh, that I think a lot of people don't know that much about, but was one of the more interesting things that that I kind of encountered in my research um, uh, that I could talk a little bit about here. Uh, but I think it shows the, the significance of some of these scholars to kind of institutional politics uh, in, in the, the late Stalin period that um, didn't go away after, after Stalin left. I mean, the, those building blocks are still in place. Um, but when the Soviet Union uh, helped to, to construct the UN um, after the war, they wanted to try to get as many seats as possible. Um, makes sense uh, for as far as Greek power politics goes. And so they set up ministries of foreign affairs for all of the SSRs um, in hopes that they would each get a seat on the Security Council uh, or at least um, a seat at the UN. The plan didn't work and only um, the Soviet Union, Ukraine and Belarus ended up getting seats, but they didn't dissolve the MFAs. And so in the case of Georgia, this became one of the vehicles starting from 1945 that they pursued a lot of these um, uh, kind of nation building policies abroad um, to include uh, the, this land grab that ultimately didn't succeed, but um, you know was quite public, uh, you know, not just within the Soviet Union, but externally uh, or abroad. Um, with regard to northeastern Turkey, um, this was uh, one of the vectors as well that um, the Georgian government pursued repatriation, and I put that in, in air quotes, campaigns of ethnic Georgians in Iran. Um, another, uh, I think, um, very, very unknown and, and kind of unusual case that, that I do chronicle in my book. Um, and, you know, they continue to use that into the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, of course, under the broader MFA structure of the Soviet Union, but um, pursuing things that might not necessarily uh, always be in concordance with, with what would, one would assume as like a Moscow line. And so um, those are two areas that uh, I think you see the intersection of history and policy and, you know, um, works by these historians are often included in, um, you know, some of the, the policy memos and that sort of thing um, that we're seeing to justify, you know, why the Georgians in Iran, um, you know, how they got there in the first place and why they they deserve to, to return home or why uh, the the Georgians of Sayangalo, um, you know, are being oppressed by the Azerbaijanis and therefore, um, you know, need some special aid from Tbilisi, et cetera. You know, so the the research of these historians is directly supporting, you know, the policy agenda of the, the um, central, uh, central Committee in, in Tbilisi, but also uh, the, this MFA in particular. You know, sometimes when these uh, conversations are happening about uh, the history of nation hood and national ideas you know sometimes we can get so focused on the theoretical debates that we don't see these connections that to the actual policy that the state is taking um but i'm also just to like take it further one point in your book about nation building that i find to be really fascinating are these like is the is the part about urbanization and the development of Tbilisi as a Soviet Georgian Tbilisi for the first time. So Tbilisi became a Georgian city in the, in the Soviet period. And, you know, the, the, the actual material way that the Soviet Georgian nation was built, not just through, you know, articles or ideas, but also through, you know, the development of neighborhoods, right? Concrete. And you know, in material incentives of people who are living in in towns and villages outside of Tbilisi, Georgianizing the capital. So 
wondering if you could just talk a little bit about this process of the how urbanization and the expansion of Tbilisi consolidated Georgian nationhood in the Soviet period. Um, I think yeah, the Tbilisi case study, and in particular at the neighborhood level, is something that uh, this is one of my favorite chapters in the book. Um, it was is seemed to be the most kind of uh, fun and, and unusual to write. Um, and, and maybe that's why uh, I enjoyed it so much. Um, so the history of Tbilisi is one that I think, um, you know, defies conventional narratives. <laughs> um, you know, uh, historically, of course, it was really uh, a multi-ethnic outpost of empire. Um, Ron Suni uh, and, and others have wrote, written about, you know, in the case of the, the Russian uh, imperial period, um, how the the city really uh was, I think, economically and politically run by uh, non-Georgians, namely um, Russians and, and Armenians, of course, uh, and what that meant for, you know, kind of the, the 19th century Georgian um, you know, burgeoning national intelligentsia, et cetera, uh, and what that meant for, in particular, uh, the 1918, 1921 government. I think, you know, the the Soviet um, approach toward um, promoting national republics entitled nationalities etc kind of by uh by implication i think meant creating these quasi nation states uh which were again kind of uh, by association uh needed national capitals too um uh you know i think that wasn't always an explicit policy but i think it's what ended up happening uh in practice but something that that did take several decades to to kind of play out and this wasn't unique to georgia you see, um, you know, Baku, you see um, a lot of the, the Baltic republics, et cetera. Um, Lviv is another good example, not a capital, but an important city for, for Ukrainian nationhood, going through similar processes at the same time. So what had been extremely multi-ethnic um, outposts of, of empire in the case of, of Tbilisi or Tiflis being the capital of the Russian empire and the Caucasus, transforming into really national capitals. Um, so, uh, you know, Tbilisi didn't have a majority Georgian population until around 1970, um, which, uh, you know, might be surprising to some who, who kind of view it as this like ancient Georgian city, <laughs> um, which of course, you know, does have roots uh, dating back many hundred years. But, um, you know, the, the reality of the matter is that it, it was a, a highly, um, you know, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional, multi-linguistic space um, for, for much of its history. And so uh, you had, I think, in the post-war period, a few different things going on. Um, you had an uh, increasing uh, shift from you know, or rural to urban migration uh, across the Union, uh, people trying to basically um, escape or eschew the, uh, the, the pass internal passport regime. Uh, and so uh, across the board, you saw a lot of uh, you know, what had been peasants uh, flocking to the cities, um, kind of on the uh, not necessarily... Um, endorsed by the, the the powers that be but but also they couldn't really do a whole lot about it in practice and so um uh, uh, this was happening at the same time as the sort of khrushchev building boom uh an effort to move from uh, on the one hand the kind of kommunalka structure of of housing in in urban spaces to dealing with the fact that in a lot of parts of the soviet union um housing was just destroyed because of the war and so, you know, his his policy to address that was, you know, to to have an apartment for every family, so to speak. And so you have the 
five um, five story um, Khrushchev sort of structure um, being imported uh, and constructed across the Union, you know, starting from the mid '60s, including in, in Georgia, of course. And so I think this this uh, rural to urban migration happening at the same time as the the residential building boom means that. Tbilisi, you know, most of the Georgians were living in the countryside. Therefore, most of the new residents in Tbilisi end up being Georgian uh, and new neighborhoods are having to be constructed uh, for them to live in because Tbilisi didn't have the existing housing stock to, to meet the needs of this, this influx of population. Again, that was largely um, Georgian by nationality. So what that means is that, uh, you know, as Tbilisi expanded away from, you know, the kind of Rustavelli Avenue, Sololaki, um, Avlabari, uh, Verevake, um, and moving beyond that, uh, I look at Sabratalo specifically as a site that was really central to this, but, but I think, you know, other newer neighborhoods, uh, kind of further down what is now the Metro line, uh, illustrate this as well, um, is that, uh, you see Tbilisi over time because of these, these trends becoming, uh, more Georgian, you know, in theory and in practice. Um, I think politically the, the Georgian Republic leadership, uh, got a little bit ahead of the story. I think you see in 1958, and this is something I talk about as well and, and have as a cover of the book, um, this 1500th anniversary of um, the founding of Tbilisi um, is, is sort of celebrated as, as a, a big, big holiday, um, big anniversary in, in the, the Soviet style. But they use that occasion to rename a lot of streets, to put up a lot of statues. Um, I think most most notably Kartlisteda. Um, but but not only, I think this is when Chapchavadze Avenue is, is given its name as well. Um, so a lot of the really hallmarks uh, of Tbilisi now uh, got, got their names uh, or, or were erected um, on uh, during this 1958 anniversary. And so, you know, you see speeches and things from from Javanadze, who was leading Georgia at that time, you know, talk, describing Tbilisi as this ancient Georgian city, um, etc. But, you know, they had a lot of work to do both. Uh, I think symbolically, architecturally, but also in terms of the, the actual population, you know, before that actually came to pass. So, um, you know, I look at that transition kind of from the the late fifties through the seventies um, at the the micro level. But um, but again, this isn't unique to Tbilisi. Baku's doing something very similar in the same period. But it just goes to show, I think, for uh, these Soviet capitals, uh, Soviet national capitals, how important it was to sort of feel um, that they were sufficiently, you know, national and developed um, and, and modern. Yeah, you even have like a section, I think, in your book about Tbilisova, which just uh, which just passed and uh, just I actually went to. Um, and it was, um, you know, it's interesting how there's this Tbilisi, the, the case of Tbilisova is really fascinating to me, too, because you, you see in the development of this holiday, this, I would say, interesting interaction between modernity and tradition that the Soviet uh, nation builders are trying to navigate, you know, how can we somehow maintain and reify and celebrate these traditions in a modern way. And so I thought this case of Tbilisoba both being an attempt to undermine, I believe, you know, when Shevardnadze is already in power at the time that it's <clears throat> initiated, in its first year in the was it the late 70s, um, early in the 80s, um, that you know it's actually an attempt to undermine these you know traditional village uh, uh, celebrations, um, and it's a but at the same time is 
you know, reinforcing the narrative of this ancient uh, Tbilisi. Yeah, um, I think uh, Tbilisova's roots in 1979, the distant past, <laughs> are really fascinating because it really is harkening back to this, like, you know, sort of folk, uh, rural, um, almost timeless um, perception of what Georgian national identity is. And it's very much a, yeah, Shepard nods a compromise to to try as part of this broader campaign that didn't work all that well to <laughs> replace um, a lot of local, um, office, often religiously derived holidays um, with appropriately Soviet ones. Um, but to police, Oba was maybe one of the more successful efforts, um, even if today you wouldn't really know that it had uh, Soviet roots. I think that's like the, well, actually I do like a lot of the secular attempts to, and, and different, like to form different kind of identities besides religious and um, class, like um, school, school class cohorts, like identification with cities and so on. I actually really love those experiments personally. Um, the nation one is probably the worst. <laughs> because it gets so bad at the end but um but this idea of like this timelessness you know i think that's every country and every place has that idea that we've always existed the way we exist and it's funny that became recently very controversial to talk about the things were the change that the states have changed you know I even had a conversation with my aunt and she got very upset with me when I said there was a making of a Georgian nation, you know, like the fact that this was a process. She's like, we've always existed. What are you talking about? Um, and like completely denying that the form we have now is from a certain historical like conditions and even ideology to sort of tie, tie it behind what it means to be Georgian. And so this for... I feel like for like lay people, for the regular Joe, that is very foreign to them, the idea of something being made. And really, this is only for like historians, at least historians who aren't just like propagandists, you know. Um, but it's really interesting because you can't have a normal dialogue about it. Then it becomes some kind of denialism or you're discounting or you're you're trying to take away like their nation or something it becomes very controversial when you start talking about it in a much more um sort of regular people way who don't have all this context and who don't have all this like knowledge to understand that you're not saying that georgia doesn't exist you're saying it has certain things that it has like, it has changed um, and I don't know, maybe you can like dis discuss that, <laughs> what you think, like, because this is so tied to like, even like how people are going to feel about your book, right? Um, they want to deny, I think that's very common here, uh, especially I'm talking about the dominant sort of uh, hegemonic institutions and discourse. They want to deny that they were actually entitled during the Soviet era. They want to deny that there was no real, like, the nationhood that Soviet Union has brought was probably the most cemented, most fully formed they've ever had. And actually, if you look at it now, it's a really mm, 
sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a nation that's very fragile and most people are actually leaving and it's this population decline and all these problems that arise from it and this fear of oh, people are saying, you know, we're losing our Georgian-ness. Um, even in English, just, you know, replaced Russian. It's, it hasn't been a huge change in that. And so, um, yeah, well, how would you talk about that like how would you what, what do you assume is going to happen what are some expectations people have and, and why is it so controversial to talk about benefiting from the soviet union not being fully formed and also maybe even you can touch upon this i don't know if you've thought about this but like i think about this all the time now where the modern post-soviet states all claim some kind of trauma is their origin story like it's this crazy thing where you have to like say you were a victim of some kind of genocide or victim of something and that's their whole nation building is like on top of this victimhood um and i think that that kind of and sakashuri does this right by saying like this russian occupation and you actually allude to that uh, at least in the in the beginning, I haven't read the, the rest of the book yet. Um, but like, you know, he tries to say this is an occupation. We've exist separately from it because he wants to sort of take part in this, like the Baltic states and all these other states were claiming trauma um, and like recreate this nation around the right wing nationalist basis of anti-communism, you know. So. Um, nation as as unchanging as eternal, et cetera, versus nation as something that is, I don't know, evolving. You know, I think this is a, an academic conversation that that needs more explanation uh, to the public. Because I still think, you know, in the U.S. and everywhere, there there really is not a clear understanding of what what nation is, uh, how nation state and nation state like are different as categories um you know in the u.s for example people refer to to nation and state you know interchangeably or country as interchangeable and i mean in the case of the u.s you know i guess that's technically accurate but it's not transferable to every possible context and so i think you know generally speaking these concepts are something that that aren't very well understood by by most people um you know clearly there is a, a very rich academic discourse um trying to untangle these terms but you know, I do think uh, nation is is a political category. It is something that is is fluid and contested, um, and and does change over time. Um, and that's why historians are interested in it as as an idea. Um, that doesn't mean that it denies uh, that there are you know longstanding roots, be they linguistic, be they um, previous periods of statehood, be it religious, etc. Um, you know, it's not denying um, that those those sort of links or roots exist but you know i think nation as a political project emanating from you know the french revolution uh, and thereafter um you know it's a it's a fundamentally modern concept and so um you know understanding that it's it's modernity it's it's political um applications uh it necessarily has to change and evolve over time um and so different groups uh are going to to understand it differently um you know whether it's temporally geographically or otherwise um, you know, that's not to empty it of its content by just saying, you know, oh, you know, it's all all depends on your perspective or all depends upon the time. Uh, you know, I think it's actually actually true in this case. Um, and it's something that, um, you know, I think uh, whether you're looking at debates in the, the late 19th century, early 20th century among 
uh, among Marxists, um, you know, you, you see uh, them really trying to grapple with with that challenge, right? Um, how to square nation and empire. Uh, what does empire mean in, in the Russian context? What does it mean in the Austro-Hungarian context? And, you know, how are the Bolsheviks going to address it differently? I mean, for them, these were really like central central themes that, you know, if you read a, uh, some of, of Ron Suni's books, you know, most notably, I think his biography of Stalin, you know, that, that takes up a good chunk of the, the thousand pages or so um, are, are dealing with, with those debates, which, you know, weren't confined to, you know, um, thinkers and, and, and scholars, but really, you know, did have, I think, broad, broad application. Um, and so uh, I think uh, getting, getting, um, you know, non, non-scholars kind of engaged on this, those issues uh, is, is always challenging, but, but I think, um, you know, understanding that uh, a nation can be modern and contested and, and changing over time, uh, doesn't mean that uh, it's denying, um, you know, longstanding uh, roots or, um, you know, content to what would become the nation um, in, in the case of Georgia. Um, I think uh, in terms of the the sort of idea that um, uh, of, of sort of a couple of centuries of Russian occupation, um, uh, that Georgia never wanted to be in the Soviet Union and therefore nothing uh constructive or or beneficial to Georgians could happen in that that 70 year period as a result, you know, this is clearly an extreme oversimplification of this period. It's not to deny the trauma that did exist in the Soviet period. I think, um, you know, it's, it's fair to say that, um, you know, there were there were there was plenty of oppression uh, to go around. Uh, but that doesn't mean that this sort of era of high, high Stalinism of the purges and the terror of, um, you know, forced um, uh, deportation and that sort of thing, you know, that doesn't mean that um, that is the only period of Soviet history uh, or Soviet Georgian history that's worth examining, or, you know, that that can be just replicated throughout the 70 year period. Um, uh, I think you you pointed um, earlier in the discussion to the fact that uh, you know, the 20s and the 30s were, were so remarkable. Um, I think, using kind of a comprehensive understanding of the word remarkable there in uh, just the uh, incredible um, social, political, economic changes, um, security changes that were happening all at once uh, that meant that uh, the, the process of early um, Sovietization was extreme, was extreme, was violent in many cases, had, you know, really um, enormous disruption uh, for, for the lives of everyone. Um, so something that I, you know, found worth um you know exploring more is what what happens then once those sort of ex- extremes of disruption uh and chaos and violence you know what happens when that's not the the day to day um once the stalin era is behind uh behind them uh after 1956 you know getting into the 60s and 70s you know the the system still exists the opportunity for you know um the security services to intervene was of course still there, but it was nothing like it was in the thirties and forties. And so once societies have a bit of a chance to, to sort of breathe and figure out how to, to sort of build the, the, the sort of modern, uh, modern socialist society, um, in a national guise, you know, what does that actually look like? Um, and that's for me, um, you know, a really important part of the story. Um, your question about, um, than the Soviet period not having kind of any 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 worthy contributions, I guess, to the the nation building conversation. You know, I think to that point, uh, 
that kind of gets at the at the Stalin problem and the Stalin question a little bit. Um, you know, Stalin was so intimately involved in the construction of of Soviet Georgian nationhood, um, both deliberately as well as I think. Um, you know, uh, talking here about the Stalin cult and the extent to which in Georgia it was construed and interpreted as a national cult of Stalin. Um, you know, this didn't happen elsewhere. Um, and with the Stalinization, uh, they didn't do a very good job of like disentangling, you know, what was national and what was Stalin, you know, what was still acceptable and, and, you know, what kind of was, was passe, at least in terms of, of the Moscow view of, of de-Stalinization. And I think we're still dealing with those questions today. Um, and so you have a weird mix of, uh, of um, uh, of trends being uh, developing in in current Georgian society, where um, you know Stalin can kind of mean all things to all people, uh, you know, a, a way to sort of stand against uh, some of these anti-Soviet narratives a little bit and and be a, a national symbol. Um, uh, a way, on the other hand, to sort of be uh, you know, Russian propaganda in, in Stalin's clothing, uh, and everything in between. So, you know, his, Stalin as a, a national symbol or national boogeyman or whatever, um, you know, he means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so you see that that image being mobilized in, in many, many different ways um, in the very polarized political environment of Georgia now. Um, but I think, uh, you know, that for better or worse, was an important contribution to to Georgian nationhood that like is still being sort of untangled and, and dealt with. Um, but not the only one, uh, because there are other things that Stalin did very explicitly, you know, during his lifetime, uh, promoting and institutionalizing the cult of Rustavelli, enabling some of these historians um, and, and other scholars to, to sort of rewrite Georgian history and give them a platform. You know, the streets are still named after these people. Um, <laughs> a lot of their ideas have long outlived. Um, uh, Stalin, uh, and certainly outlived the Soviet Union. And so, um, you know, his, his, um, his imprint, uh, lives on, even if, um, you know, it remains, uh, extremely rot and contested. Uh, you know, the idea of Stalin being attached to Georgia and Soviet Union, now that Stalin has been equated with, like Hitler and like worse, or, or people say he's worse than Hitler, you know, like so many, um, so much uh, sort of um, hate and put him in one of the worst people in the world ever, right? Like, and so then when you try to discuss any of the sort of nation nation building or Soviet Georgia or how in a lot of Georgian people's like, you know, imaginary, he is many things to different people. Like I had a much worse understanding of what a Stalinist meant before I spoke with a lot of people, then it changed my mind of how they saw Stalin. Like for them, it's a symbol of, uh, you know, Georgia was strong uh, against revisionism, against service capitalism and like people stealing and corruption is a symbol against corruption um, as a way for actual communism and not what came after him, which was like like plundering the Soviet state, you know, for like people who are really poor and struggling, he's a time where they believed in something that they were guaranteed certain rights and so on and so on. And there's like people who are like socialists or communists or have some kind of model of sort of national uh, sentiments with socialism. 
Um, and then there's, of course, pure nationalists who like them because, you know, they always like a strong man and, you know, the big guy because it's like typical. Um, and so it becomes difficult to try to unpack this for people because all they hear is like Stalinist or Stalin and that's it. They just like completely turn off every other part of their brain to listen to anything more. And it's like a taboo. And I'm so sick of the hundreds of articles written about Stalin and Georgians that come out every paper every year, a few few every year, who are don't understand at all any of the context, context and will constantly paint as like, oh, these people who are like Stalinists and they're so embarrassing or, or whatever, they have mentality and mocking them and how dangerous it is. And the fear of Stalinism is also just joke to me because there's absolutely no tendency of stalinism at all georgia there's just like a nostalgia you know um like it's like a real politics that people are are going to like espouse and which really just means to them is to just kill people right it's like it's very like devoid of anything else and so it's like something that's very difficult to talk about because this little tiny country, you know, that was built, like you said, uh, very much with full sort of, um, you know, full, not control, but like, you know, very intimately connected to Soviet, to Soviet Union, to Stalin, is also considered through, uh, you know, through many measures, uh, the European Union, US, and so on, the sort of the, the, the West, the international community as the worst person in the world. You know, it's like in history. So it's it's we're sort of stuck in this way that you you were not like we're unable to unpack it. So I can also see why a lot of Georgians, at least the English speaking ones, don't want to be associated with that, you know, because it's like so hard to even unpack it when they don't even tell you, give you a, a platform to be able to talk about it because it's so taboo. Um, so I think uh the issue that, um, yeah, Stalin can represent a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, you know, that maybe 1956 is a good starting point there because there's a reason why tens of thousands of Georgians came to the streets, uh, you know, in his defense, generally that, uh, in that March. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that as an event is still not, I think, uh, fully understood or represented in Georgia today, right? The And I think this is still the case, though I haven't been able to get back to Tbilisi since the pandemic. Um, like, you know, talking about memorialization of 1956 events versus 1989 and the crackdown then, which, you know, in terms of, of casualties, um, in terms of, you know, location, et cetera, look very similar. Of course, the reason why they're demonstrating is very different. Uh, but like, there's a tiny plaque on the side of like the Georgian Airway building that sort of talks around um, why demonstrators were on the streets in 1956, just that they were, you know, brutally shot down um, by by the Soviet army. Uh, compared to, to you know, how, how large April 9th, 1989 lo looms in popular memory. Of course, it has the benefit of being more recent, of being attached to, um, you know, the, the sort of um, independence movement thereafter, et cetera. So, you know, that that matters too. But, um, you know, I think this, this very, um, difficult fact of uh, a, a protest that was largely speaking a defense of Stalin's national honor against a Moscow-led policy change 
you know, that is met with violence in, you know, a state that Khrushchev had basically just said wasn't going to do that anymore, though, of course, the record differs. Um, you know, that uh, just sort of complexity of of what Stalin means to Georgians, to people in Georgia, you know, non-Georgians, you know, because that's a, another kind of element that I talk about kind of a lot in the book, but we haven't talked about as much today. Um, and then, you know, how the this sort of Stalin memory, uh, et cetera, kind of is is manipulated and, and, and plays out um, elsewhere in the in the post-Soviet space, you know, most notably being Russia, um, where I think, um, you know, Stalin looks a lot less Georgian and, and looks more, um, you know, he's he's a great power uh, representative, uh, et cetera. And, and Putin has invested a lot in, in sort of reviving Stalin's image uh, in Russia. Um, uh, um, you know, which has been, um, you know, uh, disturbing to see, I think, uh, what, what he has sort of, uh, latched onto and, and promoted, uh, in, in recent decades, but, but the, you know, Russian reverence for, for, um, for Stalin that Putin has worked to construct is drawing from a very different set of, of facts than the, I think what I've seen, at least, you know, some, Georgian inclinations to continue to rear Stalin and attach him to a sense of national pride, um, which had a lot less to do, I think, with like um, events on the ground than really just, you know, he was running a superpower and and, and was from Georgia. And, um, you know, that that's enough. Um, of course, both are uh, de-emphasizing uh, pretty important um, uh, facts about what um, Stalin and Stalinism meant in practice. Um, from from repression to terror to you know uh, deportations, uh, extreme political violence, etc. Um, but uh, but I do think that just as um, nation is an evolving and contested concept concept over time, I think Stalin's image has kind of become that as well. And so um, the extent to which it is uh, attached to or not modern notions of of Georgian nationhood, you know that is kind of what I think a lot of these, these debates, um, are, are about now, uh, still <laughs> because this, this process isn't over and he's such an easy, um, uh, figure to mobilize because precisely because, you know, his, uh, his period of, um, you know, his history is so violent and so, um, so horrific, um, and so unmatched, I mean, globally and historically. And so, uh, you know, bringing Stalin into the conversation ensures that you will, um, you know, get, uh, get listeners, but also invite, um, you know, pretty, pretty extreme reactions too.